Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. I'd like to introduce Jennifer Dingman. We always start our webinars uh, with the voice of the patient. Uh, we're now over 150 months in a row that we've delivered uh, continuing education to professionals, healthcare professionals. And then at the outset of the coronavirus crisis, we doubled down with uh, two 90-minute webinars each month. And we always have every one of the webinars start with the voice of the patient. Jennifer Dingman is a published author, patient advocate, representing a number of patient groups across the country. She is uh, one of the winners of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award in 2018. And most noteworthy, she's part of our Saturday morning team of a small team of advocates that were able to help push the hospital acquired conditions across the goal line with CMS at 10 years ago. And uh, that was uh, wonderful to see and uh, tied uh, pay for performance to patient safety and has an enormous impact would not have been possible without Jennifer Dingman and that team. Jennifer, would you start us off today and set our compass heading for what our charge is today? Thank you so much, Dr. Denham, for the introduction. I am very thankful to be here today. These webinars are life-saving important factors in what's going on with the COVID-19 virus. We all have so many questions and so many concerns, and, and the comfort that I personally have found from these webinars far exceeds my fears. I just want to thank everybody for being here today and encourage you to invite your colleagues, friends, and family to come to our future webinars and please listen to the recording of this webinar when you have that opportunity when, when it's up online. Again, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited about today's program and I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jennifer. And Jennifer will be one of our reactors uh, as well as uh, close us again today. Uh, so thank you very much for all you do. So the focus today is on emergency rescue skills. We have created a series of what we call survive and thrive guides. Uh, today, we have a wonderful set of speakers. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Casey Clemens uh, from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chris Fox from Mayo Clinic and Heather Foster. I'll introduce them in more uh, detail as our first speakers today. But we have a wonderful range of security experts, first responder leaders, emergency uh, medicine leaders, and also student leaders from a number of universities who have joined us. And we have Chief Bill Adcox and uh, Dr. Greg Boats, uh, both who, who are co-founders of the MedTAC uh, program at MD Anderson and who are uh, continuing to provide uh, wonderful leadership to our program. Uh, we'll, we wanna move to our speakers very quickly, but we wanna let you know that this program is one of the survive and thrive guides uh, that are part of a roadmap. We started uh, with uh, coming home safely. Uh, our second one uh, was keeping our kids safe. I'll cover them very briefly, creating your own safety uh, plan, uh, patient safety templates for everyone to put plans together, providing care at home. And Heather Foster, our nurse preventionist was a terrific uh, uh, contributor to that and will complement two of our uh, emergency medicine physician leaders uh, as our nurse leader to address that. However, I, it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't describe her wonderful contribution to that program. And then we undertook a 2021 plan uh, in, that put into context the vaccines. Today, though, we're really focused on the rescue portion 
of the of the uh, of, of the, the cycle of what we call the five R's, which I'll introduce. Quick background for those that are new to us. Uh, we represent uh, and are, are really uh, blessed to have 3,100 hospitals in 3,000 communities. We've served over the last 35 years. And over that 35 year period, 500 subject matter experts from, uh, from phys the physician base, nurses, risk managers, administrators, boards of directors, and many other uh, engineers and business leaders, as well as law enforcement, uh, all represent the 500. Uh, member group. This is a graphic representation of what the 500 look like. And we stopped counting about five years ago. We, I think we're probably close to 600 experts who all contribute their time to help all of us in healthcare and patient safety. So when the crisis hit in New York City in March, we assembled what was about a 70 member team. The, many of the speakers are on this team today. It's grown to over 90 who uh, were contributors uh, originally and through the course, as well as some that have been contributors through video clips that, uh, that they shared with us when we produced two Discovery Channel films. All of the materials that we generate are free and all of the contributors are uncompensated uh, directly or indirectly by uh, anyone in healthcare. So what happened was we said, back in early March, where could we contribute the most? Many, much work was being done and we felt it was with the families of the essential workers, those that keep the power, the water, the light flowing, uh, the, the frontline caregivers. But as you see the 16 industry sectors in this graphic from Homeland Security on the right. And then August 18th, um, the uh, Homeland Security declared all educators for K through 12, higher ed and all service providers as essential workers. So that's been our focus. And then what we decided to do was focus on families because we felt, didn't have the data at that time, that family transmission was a major Achilles heel to us being able to successfully win against the virus. Uh, our belief was if you save the families, you save the worker. We thought it was a unique place for us to serve. It turned out that the data uh, now supports that. We have uh, almost 800 family uh, uh, responses to our survey and we generated this, this uh, 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 program, which is called the community of practice. And I won't get into the detail because I want to get into our speakers right away. But what we do is convene, connect, celebrate, and co-create together with a learning community. We built four for Google. We built multiple uh, communities of practice for many in industry, uh, both in healthcare and outside of healthcare. And this is uh, something, uh, many of the tools that we learned, although we've been building them before we started working with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, many of the tools that we developed after our association really helped us. So finally, what we've been generating are short videos that are only a few minutes long uh, to longer videos and 90 minute programs. All are produced as a mini documentary. We've done 19 as of this date and we have many uh, short videos and articles, and now we're branching out to high schools with some of our student leaders as well. These are organizations that are actively involved with us in this research. We are developing community uh, continuing education programs, multiple surveys, and uh, we want you to share in our survey uh, with us today uh, by, uh, by, by, uh, by uh, answering just five questions, and you'll help us do a better job. We started off with coming home safely. Dr. Uh, Clements and uh, Dr. Fox have been wonderful contributors to this, uh, focused on our essential workers, but all of us are in the hot zone. We, dis we, de we uh, disinfect in the warm zone, and then we live in the green zone or the safe zone. However, that's where we take care of uh, uh, patients and families. 
I recommend you go watch this video, 90 minutes. I'm not covering it today. Then we covered keeping our kids safe. Most noteworthy about that was we didn't tell you how to, whether to send your kids to school. We gave you a toolbox to use to assess the risk in your community and make an informed decision regarding the vulnerabilities of your family, the vulnerabilities in your community and what to do there. Then we put together what we called our family's uh, safety plan with the five R's. Do you, are you ready? Have readiness, response if someone's infected or contaminated. Do you know how to rescue someone if they're really sick? And that's what we're covering today. Do you have a recovery plan for helping your family get back to normal or the new normal? And resilience is something we use in anti-terrorism and active shooter events is hardening the target. How do we harden, harden the target? So readiness is, are you ready? Are you practicing? Are you prepared? Response is what to do if someone gets infected or contaminated. Rescue is what we cover today. And we'll cover the detail of what we call the, the, emergency, uh, the emergency care loop from home uh, transport to the emergency department with our two experts here and our nursing uh, uh, nurse preventionist reacting. Then recovery, how do we get back to normal and make sure that we don't sustain harm? And then resilience, how do we learn from that? We created a set of templates, a 90-minute webinar I won't go into. And then we covered providing care at home. And thank you, Heather Foster, for your great con contribution and Dr. Boats uh, to help us take a normal room in a home and convert that into an isolation room or a room that, where we would care for someone. We went through a number of checklists, which I'm sure we'll update from the, what we learned today regarding some of the new things that our emergency medicine doctors are teaching us and, and telling us to do when we take a patient home. And then we covered uh, how do we integrate what we do with vaccines? Uh, the, the big takeaway is you don't stop wearing a mask. You don't stop maintaining social distance. You don't stop decontaminating surfaces. Uh, we really tried to emphasize uh, that. Over the holidays, we were having two infections every second and two deaths every minute. This is what the curve looked like when we did our December webinar. Today's curve I pulled down this morning from the modeling group at the University of Washington shows with the new, uh, with the new variants, uh, there's likely to be another bump up. The worst case scenario, and I'll ask uh, Dr. Clements and Dr. Fox to let us know whether they think that, uh, that we're gonna have another bump. I personally feel like we probably will. We're still having a hard time uh, maintaining all of the, 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 key, the key elements. And what we say in our webinars is CDC is right on. They teach you the what, we're gonna give you the how. That's our job. Our job is to give you the how. So that's how we put this plan together. I'm gonna to ask Kyle, our chief of staff to put up the, the survey and we're gonna rapidly go through that. If you've already responded to our survey, you can say you've responded to it and we'll know that you're updating it. The first question is my family or roommates are ready to take care of a loved one uh, with coronavirus on a scale of one to 10, str very strongly agree as a 10, that's readiness. Uh, our next question, uh, it looks like my computer's uh, running a little slow there, is response. My family knows what actions to take if a loved one, a roommate, or a housemate uh, is infected with the virus. Today's topic is about rescue. My family knows what to do when someone develops severe COVID-19 uh, uh, condition, and we're so excited to have two really great emergency medicine experts and a nursing uh, preventionist to help us with that. And then recovery, my family has a safety plan to return to work and play when the coronavirus social restrictions are relaxed. This also uh, is in light of the vaccines. 
And then my family has a plan to make them less vulnerable to, to uh, epidemics in the future. We're delighted to have college students and, and young adults with us. We've refined the survey for college students to make sure that they know we mean housemates and households. When we talk about a family, we think that's that, that family members are interchangeable with uh, housemates and roommates. So today we're going to cover emergency rescue skills. We wanna take you back to one of the webinars that we've done uh, uh, with the five rights of emergency care. And this keys up for Dr. Clements and Dr. Fox, some of the topics that were brought up by uh, Toph Peabody, Dr. Toph Peabody, who, who's been working with us since we met at Harvard more than 10 years ago. Dr. Peabody uh, helped me. I put a program, a uh, framework together called the five rights of emergency care. He is uh, an emergency physician, director of the UCSF Acute Care Innovation Center. He's on duty today, could not help us today. But if you go back to, uh, if you go to our website, you can see the video we did on the five rights. And if you go to the website, you can also see a 90 minute program where we built this out for caregivers. Today's audience are the general public and families of essential workers. But I think you would really uh, uh, like uh, the, the, the approach of making sure you're going to the right emergency care provider, how they get the right diagnosis, how the process of getting the right treatment is undertaken, and really importantly, having the right discharge with discharge precautions, which I'm sure we'll cover today, and then the right follow-up follow up with, uh, um, with your care providers. Uh, we've written eight articles now with the Campus Safety Magazine. This is one that we wrote with Dr. Boats and uh, Chief Adcox, who are on today, uh, addressing these family safety plans. And our college students, again, family safety could be roommate safety, you could, it's interchangeable. What we've done is we focused on the scenarios that are typical that are gonna happen to you. Well, I'm not gonna go through these today because we're gonna talk about the scenario when a loved one has severe symptoms and what's important about the triggers for emergency care, uh, having the medical records ready to take someone, watching for those symptoms. And we're gonna have our experts tell us about that and when it's time to seek emergency care immediately and then watch for uh, the triggers of other family members uh, uh, after the process. So it's a, it's a real delight to introduce our speakers today. I think we're right on time here at, at uh, 10.15. I promise to get uh, done with our preamble. Dr. Casey Clemens is both a, a, a physician and emergency medicine doctor, assistant professor and practice chair at the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. He's also recently, and I, I, I thought it was so interesting that COVID hit and they appointed him the staff safety officer for, for Mayo, uh, another responsibility. He's also, as he's described to me, a recovering researcher. So he's an, an expert in microbiology and an expert in the science. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, John Fox goes by Chris. Dr. Chris Fox is professor and chair of emergency medicine uh, here in where I live in Orange County at the uh, University of California at Irvine. Uh, a, a tremendous expert in uh, ultrasound. Gave a webinar last this last month uh, uh, to our physician and nurse and and medical student groups. And in um, over 154 90-minute webinars over 12 years, we've had about eight or nine 100% net promoter scores. It's a pretty tough uh, score to get. And uh, Chris got a 100% with an audience that typically wants patient safety topics. So I thought, Chris, we'd have a little bit of a problem with our net promoter score, but he just ran the table and did a ter terrific job. I recommend it to anyone. We had a lot of uh, consumers watch it, Chris, and it was fantastic. Heather Foster is an RN, recently got her bachelor's in nursing. 
She has been an infection prevention uh, preventionist. She's a real champion for patient safety. And she, like um, uh, a couple of our other leaders, was a 2018 uh, winner of the Pete Conrad Glo uh, Global Patient Safety Award for Innovation and has done a terrific job with us on, uh, on, on infection prevention. So what I'm going to do is, is, uh, is just uh, show you uh, a bigger shot of their pictures and we're gonna start with uh, Dr. Clements and then we'll go to Dr. Uh, Fox and then we'll go to Heather Foster as we talk about this concept of the emergency care loop. This is the checklist from a prior webinar on the checklist of what we uh, talk about. But some of these issues are absolutely critical and, and Casey, I can back up if you wish. But, um, uh, but the, the first step is what do we do at home? How do we identify whether we sh should seek emergency care for someone that is positive or could be positive? We'll go to you first, then we'll go to Chris, then we'll go to Heather, and then we'll cover each of these five segments of what do you do at home? How do you transport them safely? What do we do while they're there seeing you at the emergency department? How do we transport you home and get what you ask for, which might be supplemental oxygen and other things, medications? And then how do we get you situated back at home safely? And again, our audience are not doctors, they are family members of critical essential workers. So I know you guys are great speakers. You'll make sure to keep the, the clinical jargon uh, to the Reader's Digest level as well. But all of our audience seems to love to be trained together. So I think you can uh, give the full full Monty. Casey? Hey, thanks a lot, Chuck. Um, so it, this is a tall order, right? To talk about all emergency care and when to seek emergency care. So I think we should focus on it a little bit. And I would start at a high level and, and just say two quick things in general. One is, is that COVID isn't the only emergency. And we've seen this nationally since April that really some people aren't seeking care when they would have chosen to otherwise. And we're seeing people come in more complex because they're more ill, because they're later in disease courses, because they're scared to come to emergency departments, whether it's because they think we're overcrowded or they think that we are um, a risk of infection to them. And I would encourage everybody that you, you still have to seek emergency care, not just for COVID, but for other emergency problems. Number two is, is that what isn't an emergency is diagnosis of COVID with mild symptoms. We have seen this across the country as well as that some people might think, well, I can go to an emergency department and I can get a COVID test. Um, but really there are robust testing areas and procedures for outpatient testing across our country. Um, and, and coming to an emergency department just to get a test is really not a good use of our emergency care. So at a high level, I just wanna put those two out there before we get into the, the problems of COVID itself. So now we can put ourselves in the position of the patient, right? And, and we can say, well, I have COVID. What should I be worried about? And, and I, the list that Chuck has up on the screen is a good list. Um, I would expand upon that a little bit uh, of what are the sort of warning signs. It, it's, you might think that this is simple, but it's really not, right? Because um, everything is analog. Everything is on a continuum. And you might feel a little bit bad one day and a little bit worse the next day and a little bit worse the next day. And it's not clear to you when you should actually be worried. Um, and so there are some things that we can do. Now, trouble breathing is actually, I think, a little bit too general. And we should probably talk about what that is. Most 
um, big hospital systems and many places uh, are actually doing home monitoring programs where people are buying pulse oximeters to be able to measure their blood oxygen level. I actually have one in my watch um, to be able to see what my oxygen level is. This is not anything in, I think, 2019 that we thought we would need for ourselves as home consumers. But if you have a way of measuring your oxygen level, if you're at rest, and your oxygen level is staying below 92%, that's kind of concerning because it means that you're not getting enough oxygen in your blood to really deliver that oxygen as needed in all of your vital organs. And so I think that is one more specific way other than just shortness of breath that we can help sort of focus on that. Number two, um, you know, what is sort of not being able to catch your breath? Anybody with a stopwatch or a watch or a clock on the wall can probably count a respiratory rate. Um, and, and really a normal respiratory rate is anywhere from between sort of 12 at the very low end to 25 at the very high end. But if you time a full minute on the clock and you, and you count every time you take a breath in, if you're needing to breathe more than 30 times a minute, that's actually kind of concerning and you may eventually tire out. And so to sort of expand on trouble breathing, I think that's two, two take home messages that we can think of. Um, some of the other things there related to inability to stay awake or feeling very weak, right? Weakness is actually one of the most common complaints we see of people coming in with COVID, even if they don't have trouble breathing. And, and a lot of the problem there is around staying hydrated. People don't realize this, but especially if you have a fever and you don't feel good and you don't drink a lot, you can get dehydrated very easily. Fevers can actually make your body lose 300% of the water that it would normally lose just by normal evaporation and spit, et cetera. Um, and so staying hydrated, particularly in COVID, is really important. And, and I don't know about uh, Dr. Fox, but we, we actually see a ton of people who come in for dehydration that we have to get fluids for. Um, and, and so keeping hydrated is one of those things. And the symptoms of dehydration may be this really generalized weakness where you can't stand up on your own. That's really quite severe. Um, there are other problems other than just confusion and things like that. Not waking up or being able to stay awake is, is obviously concerning for severe infection or very low blood oxygen. But there's a couple of other complications of COVID that we should at least talk about to be aware of because this virus can affect multiple different organ systems within the body, not just the lungs. Um, and so if you have any kind of chest pain and have COVID, you don't want to write that off. Um, this, this virus can cause inflammation in and around the heart. It can cause blood clots that can end up in your lungs. Um, certainly if you have palpitations or an irregular heartbeat um, or any swelling in one of your legs versus the other one, those are other reasons that you should seek uh, care for um, if you have uh, COVID and you're starting to look for sort of more actionable danger signs that you're looking for. That Those kind of would come to the top of my head, um, although I'm sure Dr. Fox would be happy to correct all of my errors and, and expand upon that. So Chris, uh, uh, please uh, add and complement to what Casey said, and then we're gonna reverse order when we talk about transport. But I think you did a wonderful job in our, in our uh, clinicians webinar, describing the test you like to, to put to, to people. So if you could recap that at, at, as part of your, uh, your comments. 
Sure. Uh, no, I'd like to also say uh, Dr. Clements was spot on, and I don't have that much to add other than to tell you that one of the hardest things in the world to know is when to go. And, you know, throughout the last year, I have more friends calling me, asking me, how do I know when it's time to go to the ER? And it's a great question. I mean, my wife crashed her bike, and this is non-COVID related, but she crashed her bike on her hill, uh, her e-bike down her hill the, uh, a few months ago. And I was like, what do I do? Did she break her neck? Do I, do we go to the hospital right now? I mean, sometimes it's so hard to know, even for me who works, spends my whole life in an ER. So we brought her to the hospital. She got a cat scan of her neck. It was normal. It was kind of maybe an unnecessary visit in the end, but still, you know, I was still struggling. Like, do what do I do? So it's hard to know sometimes when to go. And the, the, uh, the issue of respiratory rate, I think is a great one watching the clock for a minute. It's solid advice. If it's, you know, I tell people, I tell my friends to like, if you can find some stairs, walk up stairs, walk, you know, and when you get to the top of the stairs, measure your pulse ox. And if your pulse ox is in the eighties, after you walked upstairs uh, for three minutes, then I think you should go to the hospital. That's, that's not based on a lot of science. It's basically, it's kind of like what I tell my patients when they're going to go home, or it's sort of, it, it tells me that they're getting hypoxic, their oxygen's dropping with any you know, mild exercise going up the stairs. And if it stays low and it doesn't, it doesn't come back up again into the nineties, then that's very concerning for me. And they probably need some oxygen therapy. And so the respiratory rate's a great one. Uh, we, before we discharge something from the hospital, we look at the respiratory rate very carefully when they go home with COVID. And uh, yeah, and that, uh, that low twenties number is sort of a, the magic number there that we were talking about. So if your respiratory rate is pushing 30, that would be the time to go because that's telling you, even at rest, you're not able to um, breathe in a controlled way. But I would say one tip to that would be to have somebody else check the respiratory rate. If you check it on yourself, you start, I mean, if I check my respiratory rate right now, I could tell you, I'm going to be like thinking about my breathing and I'm start. I don't know, maybe getting anxious or something. Right. But if somebody else can watch you breathe, that's always a little bit uh, better. If they're not, if, if you're distracted, like look, watching TV or something. Um, and then the dehydration issue, just that uh, so many patients come to the ER who we literally just give a uh, liter bolus IV fluid to, and then they, and then they, then they feel like a million bucks. And so, you know, outside of all of COVID, uh, if you can give yourself a trial of oral hydration before you ever, you know, whatever the issue is, especially some kind of upper respiratory viral illness, I think you're going to feel much better. And so those are the kinds of things. I don't really have much else to, to, to expand upon what uh, Dr. Clement said. I think, again, he was, um, was spot on. Great, great. Thanks. Uh, if we kind of back it up, uh, Heather uh, Foster uh, fields a ton of calls as a nurse and as a nurse preventionist uh, when we were working on putting together how you take care of someone at home. Uh, she was at work and I would listen to her so graciously talk to so many people that are anxious. And I know both of you uh, as physicians would say, always stay in touch with your physician and follow their guidance because they know your case, especially those that know the condition. If it's an elderly person, if it's a younger person who is caring for an older person, uh, you're, you're, the history is so critically important. And so uh, I know that we all uh, would say that. Now, though, Heather, uh, do you want to add a perspective from your view as a nurse when you field so many of the calls, not only from consumers, but also healthcare workers and essential first responders? Hi, Chuck. Can you hear me? Yes. Sound good. Yeah, certainly. I, I think... Um... A lot of the calls, especially when COVID started, revolved around um, taking care of, of mom and dad. 
um, a lot of them were at home and still are actually and not um, able to leave their home. So you're seeing also an increase in, um, in other conditions like depression. Um, so I was actually fielding a lot of calls to our mental health department just because we had, um, especially now, uh, we're so like how many months out from when we started. So I think it's so hard to tell somebody, especially when I can't lay eyes on that patient, when to tell them to bring that family member in. But I tell them, if you're calling me and you're concerned, bring them in. <laughs> so the family knows their family members better than we do. Um, and, and so based on that, it can, when you've got telehealth means, I think that that helps. But many of us don't, especially down in our rural areas. We also have a lot of people who don't have a means to obtain a pulse ox. Um, so I, I tell them, if you're concerned, come in. Uh, it could be something other than um, COVID. Like Dr. Clements was saying, I think we're missing a lot of um, chronic disease processes that are slowly worsening and, and it's not COVID related. Great. So uh, the reason that we have this picture on the upper left is this is a college student who uh, ended up uh, having her story presented in People Magazine, who was a college student who died in her dorm room. Uh, did not, uh, there was a lost COVID test and it turns out that, uh, that she actually uh, wasn't sure what she had, uh, tried to rock through it in her dorm room and passed away. And because we have a lot of college students that are listening and also student leaders coming back to you. Now, Chris, we'll start with you going first and then have uh, uh, Casey uh, uh, follow. I'll put this up and then I'll, I'll quit sharing so people can see, your, see you as you speak. But um, uh, these are pictures that my, uh, my wonderful wife and I took this morning uh, to make sure that we remember about transportation. I'd like to have uh, all of our experts kind of address how do we safely get grandma, grandpa, mom or dad, but then also college students who may not know each other's healthcare issues may kind of rock on and, and maybe kind of say, well, it'll get better, it'll get better, it'll get better. And then they get quite a bit sicker and they don't know each other very well because they're not part of the family. We, uh, I can tell you that I have personal examples of collaborators that are in our 500 test bed. In the test bed I just showed you of the experts, we've had physicians who've lost their moms. We've had experts who drove grandpa in with the family and everybody was in the car because they were worried about grandpa. The entire family got sick. Grandpa died. They never saw him again, but the whole family got sick. And then one of the younger teenagers has a, uh, has long hauler disease with the cardiac problems. So uh, like Chris, if you could maybe tackle this issue of how do we get to the hospital safely? And is it, too, is it crazy to wear a mask and a face shield if you've got it? Uh, what we are depicting here is if you can, where you live, have the windows down. Uh, the closed space of a car is the worst place to be with somebody who's got COVID with recirculating air in small volume. And also bringing medications that the person may be taking and their medical records. But if you want to kind of, a, we're, we're kind of sticklers for, for talking about having a go bag, having a list of the medications, take the medications in a bag, but also how do we safely transport that person who may be progressively getting sicker. And remember that these are family members of essential workers that are exposed. You'll hear from Chief Adcox and Hor Matt Horace regarding their officers are on a daily basis getting pretty exposed. 
So Chris, do you want to kick off and then we'll go from, uh, uh, then go, go, go to you, Casey? Sure. Um, the thing with COVID and environments is air exchange. And so the more air exchanges you have, the safer the environment is. And, and you can, you know, any building, you know, large building, professional building, industrial space, they have like these engineers that come out and actually have these devices that measure the number of air exchanges per minute. And so the more air exchanges, the safer it is uh, around a COVID patient. And so you think about being inside of a car and with the windows up, I mean, there's virtually no air exchange going on at that point. And, uh, I, you know, far and away, the safest way to transport someone in a private auto, if they if suspect COVID in that person is to have the windows down and uh, windows down, sunroof open. I mean, airflow blasting, you know, just like you get those air exchanges as high as possible. If you had a motorcycle with a sidecar, that would be ideal. <laughs> to just to kind of like throw the analogy as far as I can. So, um, so that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is when now with COVID patients can't really like, you know, come in with their family members and every hospital is a little bit different than this policy. And, and these policies have been pivoting a lot, but I could tell you that when we have a list of medications, even uh, as long as well as a list of uh, medical uh, problems, uh, that really gives us a leg up on what's going on uh, with, with the patient, especially if they're not already in our system. So that kind of a go bag where you have the medication list and the medical problems, any history at all, you know, so every, every once in a while we get a family member who comes in that someone has been taking very detailed care of them at home. And it's just like a, a, a packet of, you know, not too much, not a whole like encyclopedia that's, we, you know, we'll never get to, like, it's too complicated, but like a one or two page list of everything that's sort of gone on recently, that puts a lot of stuff into perspective for us, allows us to take, you know, the most, you know, sort of accurate care, especially if somebody has dementia or is altered at that point because of hypoxia and they can't really speak for themselves. You can imagine the family's outside still in the car. This is the communication here can be critical when it comes to um, uh, situations like that. So that's uh, so with those two things, sort of air exchanges and uh, lists, I think that between those two things, that's probably the, you know, the two, the two biggest pro tips I can give you. Thank you. And, and there's such a crucial conversation that roommates of college students and young adults have to have when they don't may not want to share their medical history, but that met, so there may be elements in their medical history that might be really important. So having a go bag without having to talk in too much detail, but having things together in case you had to go to the emergency department is not a bad idea for those that are, uh, that are more detail oriented. Uh, uh, Casey, what would you like to add regarding safe transport to the emergency department? And then we'll, and then we'll t take up what we do when we're there seeing you guys, but safe transport. Yeah. So I, a couple of quick things. One is, is that if you are going to leave your isolated space and you have COVID or you think you have COVID, you must keep a mask on the entire time that you're out. So, you know, Dr. Fox talked about air changes and that is very important as an environmental control to prevent infection. Masks are far more effective as source control, meaning on an infected person at preventing infection than they are on a person who's not infected in the car with them or in a space with them. So even though you may feel short of breath, even though you may be coughing and it is a natural biologic reaction to try to take something away from your face if you're gonna cough or if you're short of breath, leave it on. That's exactly why it's there. And that's the time that it's there for. If you're huffing and puffing, 
that mask is not your problem. It is not the mask that's preventing you from getting enough oxygen or from blowing off enough CO2. And we've no, we know that from trials. And so if you're going to be out, make sure that the infected person always has that mask on. Where the face shield comes into play is more in prevention of getting infected than infecting other people because you have to protect your eyes. And we know that this virus actually spreads through a protein that is expressed at pretty high levels in eyes. And that's actually why we recommend safety glasses or um, a, a face shield for this. And so the CDC would classify an interaction or as, as exposure as low risk if either both people are wearing a mask or if one of them is wearing a mask and eye protection all the time, 100%, and moderate risk if one of those people is not wearing a mask and the other one's not wearing eye protection or if I, both of them are not wearing a mask at any point. And so I can't say that driving someone in their car to the hospital is a no risk interaction. It's not, it is, it is risk, but to minimize that risk, the masking and eye protection is, is important and that does work. And so they, you shouldn't, shouldn't be overly afraid to help somebody out there. That being said, if there's any risk that you think that you can't get to the hospital in a timely manner, when you've decided that you're sick, Call 911 and one of those beautiful trucks right behind Dr. Fox will come to your house and help you out. That's what they're trained to do. And don't feel bad about that. I know we're going to talk about how to get home later, potentially in the webinar. That being said, is this is the time to start thinking about it and talking to your family about it. Because if you think it's hard to get to a hospital with COVID, it is nothing compared to getting home from a hospital with COVID if you don't have a plan in place. Because those beautiful trucks that Dr. Fox has behind him are made to bring people to the hospital. They are not made to bring people home from the hospital. They need to be doing other critical work. I think those are the only two points I would add on. Fantastic. And uh, for uh, uh, Heather, you don't have your camera on. You don't need to. You can let me know whether you will or won't. But I'm going to just make a quick comment. I don't know if anyone saw the article. I, want, I knew that, Dr. Casey, uh, Casey, you needed to get on right away. So I didn't belabor the point and put the slide up. But a recent article regarding the NFL uh, uh, was very interesting. The reason we're going to have the Super Bowl is because they were following the CDC guidelines. They found that if they uh, strengthened their own guidelines and went beyond what CDC is recommending, that's why we've got a Super Bowl. So we know these things work and that if we're even more careful about distance and uh, meeting, greeting and eating and any of these events when we're together, they were very careful. They did a lot more contact tracing and they were care more careful than what even the CDC defines and their infection rate went down and we're able to have a Super Bowl as a, as a result. So Heather, would you like to add anything regarding transport to the hospital? Um, no, I think Dr. Clemens covered it well. Uh, however, the CDC does say that if the patient, now again, I agree with you, if the patient's unconscious, we, uh, we call 911 at that point. However, um, we have seen some cases, especially from the reservation where people just get in the car and, and drive. They are recommending not to place a mask on patients who are in respiratory distress. I just read that, believe it or not. But everybody else needs to be wearing their masks and limit the amount of people in contact. Fantastic. So we'll come back uh, to you now, uh, Casey. Uh, and um, 
and, and you can lead off on what do we as family members, college students that have brought uh, a friend in or a roommate in, young adults that may have been bringing in a friend or an elderly uh, uh, family member, but may not know that much about them. And I know, uh, Chris Fox, make sure that you address the translator issue that you brought up last week, which I thought was terrific. But Casey, uh, walk us through what we should know as family members, either as a patient or as a family member of the general public or essential workers about what's going on now in the emergency department and what we need to know about what we could do better to help you. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, most people, everybody ends up in the AD eventually. That's what I tell people. So you may have been to an AD before. It probably looks different now than if you've been there before. So what will you see when you go to the emergency department? So first of all, there are varying visitor rules, right? So many places now allow a visitor, some places still don't. Some places allow two visitors and, and it will vary based on the health system and what their capabilities for protection are. Um, those visitor rules, while they're incredibly difficult for both patients, families, and providers, probably have been some of the most effective control measures because we have seen um, when infections are happening within the hospital and to staff, they associate directly with when people have been allowed to come in or not. Um, so that's, there is some reason to the pain. That being said is you may be limited to be able to come in. And almost every health system has a process for exceptions. So that would be generally things like extreme critical illness or end of life care, or you know someone who uh, requires care from a family member at the bedside, or someone who may have uh, underlying developmental um, abnormalities, for example. But again, you should know that that could be different than what you've seen in the past when you go to the ED. Now, when you come into the ED, what you'll see is, I hope, every single person in sight has a mask on, and generally anybody who's in patient contact is going to have eye protection or face shields. If you're COVID positive or if you have symptoms of COVID, when they come into your room, they will likely also have an isolation gown on um, in order to help protect their skin and their clothing from transmitting the disease, not so much to themselves, but also to other patients and other surfaces within um, the hospital. And so we actually look like we're dressed up with a, a spacesuit sometimes. Uh, I personally, when I wear sometimes because those flimsy face shields can, can be difficult to take on and off and they're not always as durable. People are wearing welding helmets that have clear glass in them. People are wearing half mask respirators that look like a Darth Vader's mask sort of almost. So you may see people wearing different sorts of respiratory protection. Now, the last thing that I'll point out about what you may see that's different other than just how the people look there is, uh, and I know that the families of all these frontline workers on this call can relate, I don't know anybody who's not completely burned out on dealing with the difficulties of this pandemic. And that necessarily changes how we interact with not only our coworkers, but also uh, some of the times the patients that we deal with. Um, you may see people congregating in different ways. People may have different looks on their faces than you might think. I promise it's not about you. 
um, th there is a phenomenon that's well published known as compassion fatigue. Um, and people are, are very um, burned out on actually some of the things that we've had to deal with throughout this. I want you to know that as a patient, every single person in that emergency department is there because they want to help you. And so even if it doesn't seem like the same sort of interaction that you may have expected when you came in or have expected in pre-COVID times, I would ask that we um, try to, to give a little break around that too. And I know that that's a little aside thrown in here, but I have heard people are, you know, they expect something different than maybe they're seeing right now. And I've, I've heard from workers that, you know, they're never going to live down some of the experiences they've had. And so I think it will look a little bit different as you come into our EDs, um, not just with what we're wearing, but potentially where we're standing, how we're acting and the other. Lastly, you, before I let hey, one Casey, more thing. Casey, uh, uh, Chris has got to leave for a, oh, his I'm own sorry. doctor's appointment. So we're going to give him a chance just uh, uh, to, to, to throw chips in here on, on the ED visit. And then, uh, uh, and then if you can hang in for just a little bit, uh, Casey, will, we were going to cover how we can prepare our story and perhaps the SBAR uh, tool for patients. But uh, go ahead, Chris. It did, uh, I know you need to leave uh, earlier. Yes, sorry, I have a dermatology appointment uh, today and I cannot be late to that. Uh, <laughs> trying to respect my doctor. Uh, so yeah, yeah no, um, I think Chuck, you wanted me to touch on the language barrier issue. And, you know, we have um, in the emergency department, we do have these translating devices that we use with our patients where uh, we can call up a translator from any like 200 languages. And uh, within a few minutes, sometimes it takes 10 minutes if it's a really obscure language in the middle of the night. But, um, but that being said, if you do have somebody that you're taking to the hospital that, uh, you know, is not fluent in English, then I, uh, you know, I think it's even, you know, sort of more important at that point to, to tell, because normally, you know, prior to COVID, we would have the family member standing right next to the patient and we could, you know, help uh, translate in that moment. Um, and, and we can still do that with the lang language translating services, but some of these patients are older, hard of hearing, and these translator services don't work as well in some of those patients. And so, again, anything you can do to provide us with that, uh, that background is super helpful with our past medical sur and surgical history, medication list, but also providing and being very available with your cell phone. So that um, so that we can talk to you directly about what's been going on with 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 your the care of your loved ones. So really, um, just being extra paying extra careful attention in patients who don't speak English when you're dropping them off at the hospital and just making yourself extra extra available. I think uh, you know goes a long way in the care of these patients. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, th this Casey, that so thank you, Chris. You've been uh, terrific. Uh, thank you for being such a contributor, um, Casey. Uh, we wrote it when the SBAR tool was used by our caregivers, situation, background, assessment, and recommendation, and piloted at, at Kaiser with Doug Bonicum, who served on one of the teams that I led, was a former submariner, and he developed the structure. It saved lives in OB, and it's been taken across multiple specialties. We wrote an article in 2008 about SBAR for patients, how we could describe our situation, background, our assessment and then make the request of the doctors. And so anything that we could do uh, to be able to communicate better. And now we've got this buffer where we might be sitting in the parking lot on the cell phone or, or have a short phone call. Uh, could, can you address maybe that communication issue and then we'll jump to the transport? 
Yeah, just if I can finish my first, the, the last sure, set about yeah. what you'll yeah, see in AD real. No, yeah. it's okay. I'm glad we got Dr. Fox's opinion. And so, so just lastly, the other thing that you will see, you, people can't come in and out of a patient room quickly. They have to put on special gear and then before they leave your room, they have to take off that gear. And so while it may be that in the past, you would think I'm going to ring this bell and somebody's going to come in and they're going to go back out and get something for me. And then they're going to come in with it. It's not really how it works right now. And so um, it may take longer to respond to when you have alerted somebody or asked to ask a question. So just be aware of that. Now on to the next question about communication. Communication is actually one of the biggest problems problems and difficulties that we've had to deal with in the pandemic. And there's communication really with family members and with loved ones who aren't present in the ED is really tough. The SBAR process that you've described is a structured communication. There's multiple other structured communication tools that people can use. It's good because it orients the listener to expect something at a certain point in the conversation. So like the beautiful part of that S bar is the R, right? And it's that recommendation. And I'm waiting to hear what that recommendation is before I'm going to chime in. So people aren't going to interrupt. People are going to be able to expect that. There's lots of other communication tools and most places are having to do different ways of communicating with family and loved ones in COVID. Uh, in, in our own emergency department, we've instituted an expectation for two phone calls at least to family members to let them know, number one, what's the initial assessment and then what is our plan? What are we going to be doing as far as testing? And then number two, what are the results of those tests and next steps, whether it's we're going to be calling a specialist or we're going to be putting them in the hospital or sending them home. And, and to try to be able to do that reliably is really hard um, because when we're dealing with hundreds of patients day in a busy emergency department to make sure that we're getting all of those people notified is really important. So like um, Dr. Fox said, making yourself available so that you're ready to receive those communications and reaching out if you haven't heard those is really important um, because we don't want anybody to not know what's going on. It's been a major challenge. Fantastic. And uh, I know Heather, you'll have some thoughts, but just so that we, uh, Casey, I know you're pressed for time as well. Uh, this is such an important, now as you have said, those beautiful ambulances are not going to be available to take the family member home who may now know they are COVID for sure uh, patients or borderline and you, you might want to um, admit them here in California and LA, we were had to turn a lot of patients away from some, some uh, our 911 system collapsed for about a week or so or longer and also certain certain facilities just were just to the max and, and uh, ambulances were sitting there in front of the house, then they would get them to the ED. But it was such a rush that that there was a lot of breakdown on how do you get the family member home safely? And how do we do what you've asked us to do, which might be to get medicines? We've got a, a picture there of the uh, of the pharmacy. But then uh, also, uh, if you want to maybe address the, uh, the oxygen concentrators and, and when you've, you've said, well, we're going to send you home, but put you on oxygen, that can be a real surprise to a family that doesn't know, well, now what do I do? Are you asking me, Chuck? Uh, well, I was going to ask Casey first and then have you kind of come in uh, uh, on uh, behind him. Yeah. So this is, this is where it gets hard, right? So most people in our lives, we rely on external transportation for a lot of different things. It's just the first point about getting home. 
Um, you can't really call a rideshare service or a taxi cab to transport you in general um, in most places in this country um, for, for somebody who has COVID because it, it puts somebody at risk, right? Um, and generally, many medical transport services are very leery about transporting COVID for exactly the reasons that Dr. Fox said. It's closed in a box. There's not a lot of air changes, et cetera. And so trying to figure out how to transport somebody home is challenging and should be considered upfront by families and roommates, et cetera, when they start the um, process of heading towards the emergency department. And I don't have a perfect solution to that. As far as how to manage at home, that's an entirely different question. Now, when we're talking about discharged with new oxygen prescriptions, that is pretty rare from emergency departments in the area right now, or in the country right now. And the reason is, yes, we can prescribe them. Yes, there's been reimbursement rule changes so that that will be paid for coming out of the emergency department. But you have to know that somebody is on stable settings of oxygen in order to send them home because they can't go home and be turning it up or down, et cetera. And so generally people who are coming home on oxygen are coming out of the hospital and there should be a little bit more time to be um, coordinated with home folks about how they'll care for that oxygen, where they'll get oxygen from, who will be coming to the home to potentially help care for that person. Um, there are some places in the country that have sent people home for years um, from the emergency department on oxygen. I know Heather's from Colorado. My colleagues in Denver have a whole process for kids with RSV and going home on oxygen. And, and it's because they live up in the mountains and they don't have that. That's not a big deal for them, but it's a big deal for most people down at uh, sea level here. And so we, uh, it, that, it's still pretty rare that somebody's going to be just sent home on oxygen, carte blanche from an emergency department. So I don't know that that's as much to worry about as it is we need to make sure that we have follow-up plans in place to coordinate the care of people. Um, treatment with some things worked much better early on in COVID. The, the antibody drugs, the monoclonal antibodies, there's two different approved formulations of that. They've been shown to be effective for mild to moderate illness, but only if they're given very early. If the patient starts to make their own antibodies, giving antibodies um, otherwise actually doesn't help and may mess it up a little bit. So we want to make sure that people have a way to be plugged in after their diagnosis, if they're going home, to get coordinated care in an ongoing way with home monitoring, like, like pulse oximetry, as we talked about already, if necessary, as well as the possibility of being considered for would they need other treatments for COVID, including these antibody drugs or other antiviral drugs or steroids. Great. Heather, do you want to now jump in on the going, going home component, and then we'll lead into taking care of folks at home? Yeah, sure. I think um, I'm glad you mentioned because that's what I was going to mention, uh, Dr. Clemens, is in Colorado, it is not uncommon for us to send um, patients home with oxygen from the ED. However, once they hit the inpatient area, and especially with COVID, we've admitted patients on two to three liters knowing that they haven't reached that five, seven day mark from the point of contact, and we know they're going to get worse. And they do invariably we're on a vapor therm by four or five days. Um, we're pushing anywhere from, you know, 40 liters up to hundred percent FiO2 and all in an effort to, to avoid intubating our patients. And we are proning them the minute they enter the room. I'm so glad you mentioned expectations, Dr. Clemens, 
even um, with pappers on, it's hard to communicate. But our patients, when we admit them in those rooms and they know they're going to be alone for long periods of time, we only have a monitor that we're able to actually um, observe them. We, we can't even see them through the window. Um, we tell them this is the expectation. However, do not hesitate to call us for anything. And, and once that expectation is established, um, you kind of see a sense of relief hit the patient that they're not alone. Um, but it is a reality for them that they're going to have to endure a lot of this disease without their families there. It's, it's very scary. Um, as I'm explaining this to many patients, you'll see tears well up in their eyes. Um, it's scary. Um, a lot of them have a common diagnosis of obesity and diabetes. So um, that's something that needs to be addressed, obviously, at a, at a later point. But um, I think that pretty much covered it, Chuck. Thank you. Fantastic. So Can I talk uh, about one more thing here, Chuck, just to bring yes, it in? Because uh, Heather reminded me, and I think it's important. One of the things that we need to all be talking about now regardless of COVID, but COVID kind of pushes the issue, is understanding what our family and loved ones' goals of care are. And, yeah. and I'm not talking about just advanced directives, et cetera, but broadly speaking, what is it that we want if we were to get sick? And as far as like, what do we want out of life, right? Do we really want to live longer? Do we want to live happier? Do we want to make sure that we are not going to suffer? And those are value decisions that need to be addressed before they come up in the moment. So yes, we have these discussions in hospitals and emergency departments, but it is much easier to have those discussions when we can breathe and when we can talk with the people around us. So it's important for people to learn what does it mean to have a do not resuscitate order? What does it mean to have a do not intubate order? Those are separate, even though many of our, our, our places tend to lump those together. Most people, when you talk about them, would actually want to be intubated for a short period of time, knowing that that's not an irreversible thing. Um, what does it mean to have a comfort care measure is that something that you would want if you got to a certain level of sickness? And having those discussions before you get into the emergency uh, department and hospital situation is actually part of our rescue skills that I think we should talk about because understanding what people's values are actually helps us with being able to deliver the care that we would all want if we were in that situation. Um, and it's not simple as just DNR, DNI, or comfort care. What is it like to be intubated and have a breathing tube put in? What is it like to have these full face masks, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation like CPAP or BiPAP? What is it like to have high flow nasal cannula, which is sort of uh, laminated airflow giving oxygen into the lungs? And, and talking to you know, healthcare sources that you trust about this now um, is never a bad thing. And particularly in COVID times can help prepare if things happened, right? And, and you don't have to make those decisions in the moment. Fantastic. And these are all, I know for our younger people uh, that are college students, uh, this seems like, well, this might be for older and sicker patients, but this is our younger people are going to have to help take care of their parents and friends of the family that are in the same city. And all of a sudden this is thrust on young people that have not been around healthcare. And we're going to have to rely on them for transportation and thinking about all these things and having the go bag and having a charger with for the phone when you go and having your phone charged so that when you're in the parking lot talking to the emergency doctor that, you know, these are all pretty important things. And so 
fantastic uh, uh, with you guys. Now, what I'm going to do is Dr. Boats was uh, on duty today. So he is going to share uh, uh, with you, uh, uh, I'll share with you a video clip from Dr. Boats uh, today. And, uh, and uh, he wishes uh, all of you well. I know he would have really Dr. enjoyed Boats, many thanks now, for spending time. Just with a me. moment. I'm going to and this will be from Dr. Boats. He's on duty in ICU today. And Dr. Boats, uh, many of you know him because he's uh, re regularly on our programs, but Dr. Boats is a professor of critical care in, uh, at MD Anderson uh, and is also an adjunct full professor at uh, Stanford uh, Medical College and has been a co-founder of uh, the MedTAC program along with uh, Bill um, uh, Adcox, who you'll hear from shortly. Dr. Boats, many thanks for spending time with us today. I know you're out of town teaching as you frequently are and contributing to other organizations. Uh, what we'd like you to do is to address coming home after uh, the emergency department has seen the roommate or the loved one or the friend and how to get home safely and properly. Sure. Part of the rescue plan uh, is how to organize a safe way to go from home to an emergency department to seek medical care. But just as important is how do you go from the emergency department back home? Uh, we know more and more these days that when people are seeking medical care in an emergency department, they aren't admitted to the hospital. Um, they're given additional therapy, maybe additional medications, and they go home to continue their care. That part of the rescue plan needs to be discussed and described because that's uh, an opportunity to provide safe care and transportation home. And then we have to adjust the home plan accordingly to incorporate those new therapies or interventions that are recommended in the emergency department. Fantastic. In the protocols that we put together with you to establish an isolation room early on in the COVID crisis, we did not address oxygen and oxygen concentrators. Can you just give us a, a little bit of an insight as to how patients now are established when they go home regarding oxygen and why? Well, certainly one of the key therapies that COVID patients may need because of the lung injury is supplemental oxygen. And we were admitting patients to the hospital to receive that care, but now we know we can do that at home safely. But that means acquiring some means of providing supplemental oxygen, whether that's oxygen bottles from a, a medical provider or supplier or obtaining an oxygen concentrator that takes room air and concentrates it in a way to increase the oxygen content. And, and those uh, therapies need to be implemented within the isolation room, within the safe space that the COVID patient resides in um, while at home. That has to be incorporated into the home plan. Fantastic. Uh, last question. You're the chief medical officer for uh, a terrific police department uh, at MD Anderson and helping take care of uh, so many people in Texas Medical Center. Do you have advice for professional first responders, law enforcement, regarding the importance of readying their families for potential rescue since they're at higher risk? Well, there's no doubt that first responders, including law enforcement, are at much higher risk of, of contact with uh, people who have COVID-19 disease. And so it's really important that they have a sound plan for rescue in place. Um, we are fortunate that they're willing to do that job and do it well. 
but we have to understand that uh, just as they are at risk for being exposed to people with COVID-19 at work, um, a lot of the COVID transmission happens in the family unit in at home. And so there has to be a plan in place to, to rescue, to seek medical care when needed uh, for our first responders. Thank you, Dr. Boats. Thank you for your endless contributions and wisdom and help uh, on these critical issues. Thank you. So uh, we're really, really honored to have Dr. Boats uh, working with us uh, on this issue. So uh, Casey, if you can hang in just for a few minutes with us, we, we uh, have put a whole program together for managing patients at home. Heather was uh, instrumental as was uh, Dr. Boats at putting checklists together for separating laundry, cleaning the home, uh, having uh, disinfection stations and the room set up. We're not going to cover that today, but uh, if you could uh, uh, just tell us uh, what highlights of, the, uh, of, of these, these areas might be important. Also knowing that the, we might have college students that are in a dorm and or, or uh, young adults and college students that are, sh that are roommates, uh, what we need to maybe keep, keep most at mind as we talk about providing care at home. Chuck? Yes. Are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go to. I was going to go to. Uh, uh, I was going to go to uh, uh, Casey first, and Casey okay. had to go. Okay. I don't have to go. I'm here, but I'm actually. Uh, I would defer to Heather. I. I uh, I, I didn't hear a question exactly in what yeah. you said. I heard a lot of explanation. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we, we, as an emergency medicine doctor uh, who sees people that come back or w things that keep you up at night regarding your patients going home, are there highlights? Uh, we, we went through a whole program, which we're not going to redo here, of how to set up an isolation room and care for someone in the home. And I'll have Heather kind of just hit a couple of highlights there but since we have you today, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were there. Yeah, uh, things the big, the, the big things, the things that keep me up at night um, are generally what Heather had spoken about with the comorbidities and the underlying medical problems, right? So if somebody is 90 years old and they have high blood pressure, heart disease and diabetes, and they come in and they're diagnosed with COVID and they're breathing okay, I send them home and I worry that they're going to get worse. And then, you know, a few days later, maybe they come back and they don't have a breathing problem, but they're dehydrated. Every single time I discharge those folks, that kind of keeps me up at night. And it's not just the patient themselves, it's the people they live with. Particularly in our older population, you know, our, where families take care of each other, right? And so um, this disproportionately affects um, minorities who have, may live uh, in, in uh, really extended family situations and take care of each other as a part of their culture. Um, they, they can pass this uh, around from young, healthy people to folks that don't do as well with the illness. And in the older, older population, um, you know, uh, grandma may be the caregiver for grandpa and grandma's doing okay, but grandpa has terrible, terrible comorbidities. And if I send grandma home, you know, it's going to put grandpa at risk kind of thing. Uh, and so th those are the things that I think really keep me up at night and I see as the highest risk for coming back or doing poorly at home. 
Gotcha. Uh, uh, Heather, uh, I think what we'll do is allow uh, our college students and young, and, uh, and, uh, young adults maybe uh, uh, make a comment and then have you uh, help complement that with that uh, because we're not redoing our uh, care at home, but it's critical that, uh, that we know how to do that and we'll just watch our time as, as, as we go back. Uh, first off, Paul Bataya is, uh, is an EMT, president of the uh, Emergency Medical Services at, at, at the University of California, Irvine, uh, was in the news numerous times. Uh, Paul, thank you for uh, the great uh, contribution that you made uh, here at UCI to get uh, get things going and now helping with vaccinations. Paul, uh, comments that you'd like to make or uh, questions that you might want to ask uh, Dr. Clements while he's on? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I definitely learned a lot today from Dr. Fox, Dr. Clements, and, and Heather Foster. Um, I, you know, I did want to emphasize that, you know, especially for people uh, young adults to stay in contact with your housemates, with, with the people in your household. Uh, I'm also a COVID-19 contact tracer uh, as, as a volunteer. And what I find when I contact people around my age is that they really don't know the medical background of the people in their household. Um, and that could, that could really bite you, you know, it, in the back when it comes to medical emergencies. So that's something to keep in mind. Fantastic. And uh, thank you for your great contribution here locally. You've just done a, 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 a terrific job. You're also uh, have helped us teach our, our MedTAC program, which uh, Casey, by the way, we've now been able to completely convert to totally remote. We, we just did uh, a basic life support certification of a, a number of people totally remotely uh, using mannequins and video. Um, I'd like to ask Jamie Iristorsa to comment. Uh, and uh, Jamie is uh, a, a UCSD a graduate. He's uh, been accepted to probably multiple medical schools by the end of that this month. Uh, will be uh, will be going to medical school. Uh, has actually been a co-author with us on our article on masks, the science of success, and provided uh, a, a terrific contributions uh, there. And also has really learned a lot about the aerosol and droplet spread, uh, Casey. That has really Kind of changed a lot about uh, of our emphasis on the on the four pillars of uh, uh, of uh, the CDC on public health. Jamie, would you uh, would comments you'd like to make or uh, any questions you might want to ask? Yeah, well, first I just want to echo Paul. Like, thank you very much, Dr. Clements and um, Dr. Fox and Heather for your really excellent contributions today. I mean, I've been working with this organization for quite a while now, and I'm learning a lot today too. So, thank you very much, and thanks again for the opportunity to be speaking. Um, so I will say, I think it's very important, like Paul said, to have these conversations, especially among young people in living groups in your apartment, so that you're prepared. I mean, in the Boy Scouts, like the motto is be prepared. And I think that, you know, that's really good advice that everybody can learn, and everybody should apply to and, and try to like, uphold during this pandemic. Because even if you don't want to have those you know, public information or everybody, all of your roommates know about your medical histories, just to have the conversation so that you have a piece of paper or a go bag um, and you know what to tell the doctor when you're in the emergency department. I'm sure it, like anything you can do to make the doctor's lives easier in this pandemic is really something that we should all um, be trying to aim for. So I just think it's super important that um, you're having these conversations and with, with your housemates or your roommates or even your family members, whatever your living situation may be. And to familiarize people, even if you don't, you're not an expert, just to familiarize your, your situation and make sure everybody's aware of here are the potential problems and here are the potential plans that we need to be pursuing will be enormously helpful if you actually do have to implement them. Great, thank you, Jamie. 
Uh, and what, what we'll do now, actually have a short video clip uh, of uh, Charlie uh, Denham. Super Bowl parties, spring break, and ski week provide terrific opportunities for youth and young adults to play a leadership role. They can keep their families, roommates, and friends safe by being the family or friend lifeguard. Just a few actions before a gathering, during a gathering, and after a gathering can have a real impact on preventing spread of the coronavirus. Teens and young adults are super spreaders. The new virus strands are more transmissible, so we have an opportunity to do our part and lead. There are all kinds of risks we can reduce. I'm a surfer, which is a pretty safe sport. My greatest risk may be traveling to and from an event in cars, which are poorly ventilated. So that is a setup for you, uh, uh, Janavi uh, Rao. She is a, uh, a Harvard uh, student. Uh, she's leading our Harvard effort. She's going to recruit uh, pre-med students uh, and, uh, and uh, folks from the Harvard colleges. Since we all have great roots there, we've got great faculty we can bring to the party, but I think she'll help us recruit, uh, recruit college students. She also has done a terrific job at getting out the vote and has reached out to 250 uh, high schools across the, the nation and is a, a, a terrific a social entrepreneur. And we're going to ask her for advice and bring some pilots for high school students. So I thought, Janavi, I thought I would just put that in to describe where we're heading in towards Super Bowl. We're going to have young people getting together. Uh, there's an opportunity there for your group actually to take the lead with each other, but maybe perhaps for their families uh, in the high school. So I thought that was a bit of a setup for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So echoing what Jamie and Paul said, thank you so much to everyone who has spoken on the call. I have definitely learned a ton. Um, and also the video, your son, is, is really, really insightful because I do think that the high school students are much more exposed uh, to COVID than college students are just because I'm, you know, I'm on campus, but I'm in my room, all my classes are online. There's you know, we get tested three times a week, like it's, there's a lot going on over here. But in high schools, um, they are often going into school and there's a school nearby to me where a lot of the senior class went to a beach house over the Christmas break, like winter break. And I think that, you know, students being aware of like the protocols that we've, that you guys have discussed here, I think that a lot of people aren't familiar with the idea of bubbles, with the idea of like, they just think it's all or nothing and then there's no middle ground. And I'm definitely, I'm very confident that communicating with high school students, like you can keep your family state safe and still, you know, enjoy life uh, by doing some simple, simple things. I think what you were talking about with the different zones could honestly be applied to a lot of, you know, high school students when they go out to school and how they return back to their houses and, and all that. So definitely a lot of application here and super excited to be rolling this out to our, our 250 high school chapters. Well, fantastic. We are so grateful for you doing that. We know that uh, that they really can influence the entire families. And when we get to Keith Flitner, who's one of our community leaders, uh, uh, we'll, we'll address that. Uh, Danny Policicio, are you still with us? I, I know Danny had uh, to go for a test, but I'm not sure whether he's still with us. Danny, are you still with us? Uh, yes, sir. I'm still here. 
Danny, would you like to make a comment to our uh, Ask Dr. Clements? I can see he's still here and to have an ex world-class expert like him. Uh, if you've got any questions, I'm sure he'll uh, be happy to answer them or any comments. Danny Policicio is, uh, is a film student at uh, NYU. He's one of our two uh, NYU film students uh, that are there. And we're so grateful. Danny was an assistant producer of a number of our MedTech uh, programs. And actually he's been with us since we started five years ago, Casey, at uh, a school in Orange County when we started with our uh, uh, CPR uh, Stop the Bleed programs and was, uh, was a pivotal member of our team. So Danny, thanks for your continued support. Thoughts you might have. Just thank you so much, Dr. Dunham, and thank you to everyone else on this panel. Today's just been a really, really educational day. And I just have to echo what Jamie and Paul said, how preparedness is so important and how you have to have the conversation with your roommates to truly understand what to do in the case of COVID. But a good question I do have for uh, Dr. Clements is basically as since I'm a film student, what do you think would be the best way to outreach towards young adults, teens, and everyone in the high school to college area to help them become aware of COVID and truly how they're super spreaders? Great question. It's an awesome question actually. And it gets back to Janavi's point too about like you tell the story about the beach house at Christmas break. My skin is crawling with the crazy anger. No, I'm just kidding. But it's it's a it's challenging. So I think what you're asking is you young persons, and I can't believe I'm saying that I'm not that old. Um, uh, actually, because you're closer to this, can maybe figure out how to get people to care. And, and, I, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, but I, I think we tend not to think about our risk to other people, we think about our risk to ourselves. And so it's very easy to be very smart and to be objective and to look at the data and say, I'm a 17 year old high school senior, junior, and if I get sick, it's like a 0.1% chance I'm gonna die and I'll probably be just fine. But I think that this is absolutely how the virus is spreading. And I know that with the data that we have, that you know, 20 to 54 year olds is, is really the age group that is powering this pandemic to continue. As a film student, like part of your job is to help people care about your content and help people understand and care about your subject, right? And I, I don't know the right way to help that 17 year old who wants to go to the beach house understand that they're putting their best friend's grandmother at risk by doing that and to care enough about it to decide to do something else. And so I, I, it seems very basic, but to get back to understanding the things that are motivating us um, as individuals um, and our understanding of individual risk is really, I think, important. And if we can figure that out through our work and through like actually talking with other young people about it, that would be huge. I think other places in the world have done this much better than the United States. Part of that is because there's, we have much more individual freedoms here and we appreciate that. But it also gives us the opportunity to make maybe not as good decisions, too. And so helping people care about that, I think, would be the number one priority, if that makes sense. 
great, uh, great, co great comment uh, from our young adult uh, group. Uh, any other thoughts or comments or questions you want to ask Dr. Uh, Clements? This is a rare opportunity. And, uh, uh, and, and then we're going to shift over uh, to community and talk about some of the membership organizations of the, of the schools with uh, Keith Flitner. And we'll finish up on law enforcement, which is our first responders with Chief Adcox, who we have. Uh, uh, Janavi, any other questions? That, yeah, I can see you have one. Go ahead. You're muted. Perfect. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Clements, for that comment, especially on how it related back to the high schoolers in my hometown. I actually had a question on, to me, I, I there's this whole dilemma with, you know, primary, secondary, and like education, high schools, how they are, you know, managing teaching because there's so many students and they all have their family and their parents are sometimes, you know, first responders and, do you have, how do you think that, that, you know, students can be responsible while going to school? Like, what can they do when they go into their school? Should they ask their parents to drop them off instead of take the bus? Like, are there, are there just general things that are specific to students that they could do, but that would be reasonable to expect a fifth grader to do? This is actually a really important question. So, this is, this is a lesson for all of us. The absence of evidence is not evidence to the contrary. So what does that mean? So um, anybody who you talk to about the school dilemma of sh should kids be going to school? How should they be going to school? They feel very strongly about it because it's very personal to us, right? I have three kids, including a high school daughter. That's, I'm still not old. Um, but the, the uh, having kids, it's very personal, especially when you're trying to work and you're trying to do these other things. And so everybody believes very strongly what they want the truth to be. And then they can go to the news or they can even be very sophisticated and go to the medical literature and start to look for evidence that's there to actually prove their point. And you can find anything that you want to, right? So there's a huge debate in our country about whether in-person schools are the right thing to do or not. And there's a lot of published studies that say schools don't seem to be driving this in this pandemic um, but it's based on the lack of evidence, not the evidence to the opposite, right? So kids don't all get symptoms. In fact, there's a really good uh, piece of evidence that says most of them probably are asymptomatic when they get sick. And so if you don't get sick, you're not going to get tested. And if you don't, don't get tested, you don't know that you're infected. What happens is, is that you make mom or dad sick and they get flu-like exactly. symptoms and they go get tested and they're positive and they're told what? oh, you probably got it at the grocery store or the gas station. And so we don't actually know the risk of schools. I'm going to be perfectly honest with that. And I'm not going to be the person who's going to come out and say schools are spreading this or are not spreading this. The answer is, is in every other infection, they can spread through young people. And I don't think that it's, you know, based on European data where they have tested a lot of teachers, it probably is spreading in the schools. And so uh, I would just plan to say that, that every precaution that you can take when you do the things that you have to do should be considered. 
if you can get a ride to school with mom or dad instead of taking the bus, yes, that's going to be safer for you and your family. Can everybody do that? Absolutely not. That we have to rely on the services that we have to rely on. And so uh, this is not so much a policy, big picture, um, you know, uh, this is what we should be doing about going to school or not going to be school, going to school, but every family should consider how they can minimize the risk that they have to take with what they're doing. And I've done that for my three daughters um, and, and have done things this year for a school that I never, ever, 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 ever thought I would do. Um, we're teaching two of them at home, which I have been always a huge proponent of schools. And then the older one is actually doing a virtual online school and we picked the right one. So she's doing very well at it, but it's, these are incredibly difficult decisions. And I don't think that we can fault people for doing what they have to. We just have to support them for making the best decisions that they can with the information they have. That's kind great. of a non-answer, but I hope it no, answered No, 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 no. It. It's a great answer. And, uh, and uh, just for those of you that haven't watched our Keeping Our Kids Safe webinar, we went through what Casey's describing of looking at you, the vulnerability of your family, looking at your community infection rate, and making a really informed decision rather than just a blanket yes or no. Uh, and and we will, we'll, we'll go a couple minutes over I, because I wanna make sure that we're, we have a, a video from Matt uh, Horace from Mayo Clinic, as well as uh, Randy Steiner from uh, UCI. And we wanna hear from Chief uh, Adcox, but I know that Paul Bataya had a question and I, I wanna give him a chance to comment and then we'll go to Keith Littner. Paul, you have a question? Yep, okay, I'll, I'll make this uh, pretty quick. So, you know, given that COVID-19, you know, has a pretty respiratory basis and, you know, it's, it might end up resulting in, you know, decrease of oxygen supply that could affect, you know, vital organs. Um, so Dr. Clements, in terms of the, the symptom of, you know, new confusion, could you explain to, to some of us, you know, our non-medical folks, um, what that might actually look like in a, in a patient? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And this is where we're getting into the, like the super critical illness, right? Um, and so I've given a couple of webinars for Chuck on sepsis. Those are more for medical folks, but sepsis is essentially an inflammatory response to an infection, which is out of control to the point that you have that decreased blood flow and can cause things like confusion or other organ dysfunction. Now, um, Sepsis, people tend to think about as a bacterial thing. That is not true. Any infection can do it. And COVID-19 can absolutely cause sepsis. And so if you have a COVID-19 infection and your immune system has gone off the deep end and you've gotten dehydrated and your blood pressure has gone down, even though you don't know that because you're not hooked up to a blood pressure machine or other molecular changes in your body have changed, you can actually have um, decreased oxygen delivery to your organs. You can actually have um, uh, changes within your own sugar metabolism. All of these things can lead to confusion. Now, what does that look like for the people who are with them? There's a couple of different kinds of confusion. Um, one of those is actually sort of being very sedate. They're just asleep and you can't wake them up. That one's kind of easy, right? But some people are actually get confused and it's relatively subtle. They can maybe use the wrong name for things. They could actually maybe list a date that's incorrect or they could start with um, maybe making a story that you know is not true, but they're talking um, like it is in their head. That's called encephalopathy. And it actually is, is one of the things that you should look out for. Like grandma's not acting right. And then she's actually telling you, um, about some sort of thing that happened last week. And you're like, I don't 
that didn't happen last week. That those are things that you should look for as far as the two different kinds of confusion. Is that helpful, Paul? That's helpful. Thank you so much. Uh, that that is excellent. Uh, thank you very much. And Keith, I think what we'll do because uh, 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 Keith. Uh, uh, Flintner is a scout leader who I'll introduce in more detail, but I think what I'll do, Keith, is have Randy Steiner and uh, Matt Horace, very short video clips from each one, and have you be the first reactor and then go to you, Chief uh, Adcox, because I think what they talk about in preparedness, and Janavi, this is where there are membership organizations in our schools we can tap right now, like scouts, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, faith-based organizations that are already doing community service and have to rack up those hours, here's an opportunity for them to do something to help seniors in the community and that kind of thing. So I think what I'll do is I'll go to Matt Horace. Matt, thank you for taking time away from a very critical job as the leader of security for the Mayo Clinic. Uh, you have a rare perspective on why families of first responders and the general public really need to know how to take care of someone if they have to rescue them because you've had COVID and you see it from both sides. What would you like to share? What, would, what do we need to know about uh, our families knowing about how to rescue a loved one? Well, thank you, Chuck. Well, you know, the first thing I think of is we have to prepare, prepare and prepare because you never know when you're gonna get that notice or that first symptom that lets you know that COVID might be a possible, might very well be a possibility. In my case, three of us in the household developed symptoms over a three day period we all got tested and we all had COVID. And what happens if it's you, the one who's used to providing care to others that now needs the care from your family? And what happens if they in fact are infected and now you all need care? So you have to have that, that ready action plan. You have to understand what your needs are gonna be. But when you get that first symptom, that's when you need to stop, look, pay attention and get tested. If you wait three days, you, your infection might very well be in the advanced stages and the people around you not maybe will be at risk. Fantastic. What specific message do you have for those in law enforcement, in security, uh, first responders who have to get close, up close and personal with uh, pot potential victims and potential uh, perpetrators of, uh, of bad acts? Well, first, we all know that we should be practicing proper prevention and proper PPE. But secondly, our culture sort of dictates that we brush off our own symptoms, that we get back on the saddle, get back in the patrol car and get back to work. If you start feeling lightheaded, if you have a temperature, if you have a cough, if you have nauseousness, if you have any COVID symptoms, you need to stop and get tested immediately. Fantastic, Matt. Thank you so much. Uh, the last question is regarding aerosol spread. Now that we know that this spreads, it, the spread is much more likely through aerosol spread and through our families. Uh, any encouragement to our frontline workers and their families regarding uh, what they do at home? Well, when necessary, keep PPE in place. Masking is our best defense and don't let your guard down. Fantastic, Matt. Thank you for taking time and thank you for the service that you do to our nation through the Mayo Clinic. Thank you. Have a great day, Chuck. So uh, uh, let's do this. Let's go to Keith Flitner and to Chief uh, Adcox. And in our full recorded uh, section, we'll go ahead and add Randy Steiner, because I think the Chief uh, uh, Chief uh, uh, Adcox, you are going to cover uh, uh, the similar, similar topic. Uh, Keith Flitner is an aerospace engineer. 
Uh, Keith is a scout leader and advancement chair. We talk almost every day regarding uh, our service to scouts and through the through that membership of a very large uh, area here in the uh, in Orange County. Uh, Keith is a leader in the community and as a leader uh, of uh, organizations like membership organizations, but also day-to-day -day activity. He also is uh, processing all of the Eagle Scout uh, uh, projects of uh, those that are getting their PhD in scouts, if you will, um, and, and helping those uh, young uh, men and women because the girls are now going through and getting their Eagle Scout as well. Uh, Keith, what would you like to add or uh, ask uh, of Dr. Clements? I'll tell you what, uh, first, thank you, Chuck, uh, Dr. Denham. Uh, you know, we've really started been working together on this even back in February and March, and we found that getting the, the Cub Scouts was a natural fit in becoming that family advocate for safety in the household all the way up through the um, older Scouts and then turning it into service projects. But we did have a, a committee meeting last night, and one thing that came out of that meeting that maybe we, uh, Dr. Clements could, could address is that as we have continued to try and move scouting forward, you know, there's always that false perception that tomorrow it's all going to disappear. And I, I think right. you uh, brought up the, uh, Dr. Clements, the, the risk profile that everybody has to develop. And I think we're going to find that, that there'll be families that are still holding back, but they want their kids to participate. They want to, you know, so we, we're trying to develop that hybrid type of environment as the new normal. I mean, we're talking Eagle Scout Board of Reviews, where we can now, we're doing them all by Zoom, but even campouts where a scout could camp at home while his unit is camping there. And, and so I think the progressive thinking of, of that, uh, you know, maybe uh, in a positive world, we would hope it all disappeared, but a realistic approach. And I think uh, you've seen that in other areas where institutions are starting to, to develop more of a realistic picture of what the future is going to be. Yeah, so uh, yeah, this is what we call the new normal, right? So the, uh, the issue is going to be, does the post-COVID world look like the pre-COVID world? And the answer to that is no. I can tell you at Mayo, there are thousands of employees that are remote working that will have been told they are continuing to remote work after this um, because we've found different ways to do that. That being said, is there are some things with the intra-COVID world like we're dealing with now that are not sustainable, right? And I think everybody appreciates that. I, I don't know of any public health official who thinks that social isolation um, is good for you. And so as we look towards that post-COVID world, just stay at home and stay away from each other is not a sustainable intervention. And it's not the way that we're gonna be able to stay safe. And so you are correct that there are things that will be different forever because of this. And many of those things are actually good. Like, yeah, Zoom is not as good as being in the room with other people, but I can tell you that I sit down in my office chair at 7 a.m. and I get up at 6.30 p.m. and I get a lot of stuff done because I don't have to go to 800 different places to do it. And so some of those things we will continue, but, the effectiveness on mental health of our young and old, as well as the chemical health of our communities, um, we're going to be dealing with for years and years to come. And I don't think anybody it doesn't think that that's true. And in the post-COVID world, how to get back together and do it safely is still in flux. 
the problem is, is that we are not in control of the pandemic. So it's very nice to say in March, we're going to start to go to hybrid or in April, we're going to start to travel again. But we're not in control of the pandemic. The pandemic is in control of the pandemic. And so we have to be a little bit reactive to what it's like in the community now. And Chuck said at the beginning, he anticipates there may be a bump. There will be. It'll be in March and it'll be, you know, the models would say it's likely because of this British variant, which is spreading widely through our country um, and, and is more virulent. And so I, I don't know when we can say that this is done. And I don't know when we can say that we have enough of the population who's protected to be able to go back to something different. It's going to have to be a wait and see game and it's a little bit reactive. We're picking metrics at many of these healthcare organizations to track for new cases and employees, for HRR cases per 10,000 employees, things like this. And, and where we're actually starting to look at how do we start to decrease what we're doing to something that would be acceptable in the state that we will be in when we get there? It's not something that you can look too far ahead with, though, because we aren't in control, if that makes sense. Is that helpful great, other than being really depressing? It's a great answer. It's an honest answer. I mean, I think uh, I think uh, Genovi and, and uh, Danny and... Um, uh, or other young people that that had to drop off, uh, and if Paul is still there, uh, is this going to go away? And is there is there value with, with uh, Jamie, you and I continuing to work on on things? I I think that there are going to be multiple bumps. Uh, I think it's going to take it's a race again of the new variants against the vaccines against vaccines adjusting to the new variants, and I don't think we're that compliant at the things that could stop this. So as I look at the curve at the very beginning of our discussion, I look at the worst case and say that's the probable case. Now the good news though is we do have interventions. We know what we can do. CDC is now doing a great job. They're getting the communication out. Groups like us can give you know they give us the what. We could give people the how. We could. It's not splitting the atom. This is stuff that high school students can bring home. They can implement. Teams can can implement. And uh, we really believe that our leverage point, because we're the only group actually focusing specifically on families, are the families. And so I'd like to go to Chief Adcox. Uh, we run just a few minutes over, and then Heather, if you would like to add anything about the young people, and then we'll go to uh, we'll go to Jenny uh, to close and give her a chance to react as well as close us. But Chief Adcox, you've been patient. You uh, Chief Adcox is actually a, one of the pioneers of threat safety science. We're doing a tremendous amount of work, uh, Casey, in the area of emerging threats. We talk about what's keeping us up at night. We've identified. Uh, approximately 30 things that are keeping us up at night in healthcare at our major medical organizations. And Chief Adcox and, and Dr. Boats and I and Heather and a number of us are working on this issue of vulnerability and the vulnerability of the individuals, the organization and risk. And so thank you, Chief. And also Chief is making it compulsory to take our CME course for uh, all of his officers. So uh, Chief, you're kind of our anchor man here, if you'd uh, uh, share your thoughts regarding that. Now, he is the chief uh, security officer and the chief of police at MD Anderson, the University of Texas, and serving more than 20,000 in the community. But they really rely on MD Anderson to be the, the real leader at the Texas Medical Center that sees 9 million patient interactions uh, a year and over 50 million square feet of R&D space and care space. So, chief, your thoughts. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Denham. And, and 
let me thank uh, uh, Dr. Clements and all of the panelists, and in particular, our, our younger panelists with Truly, you all are going to be the future and you're going to be taking this information and doing really well by us. But one of the principles of threat safety science is, is, is early, early outreach, early intervention. It's all about prevention. And what we're talking about today is, especially with, with uh, some of the different principles of PPE and stuff, is how, how do we prevent a lot of this? So one of the things I do want to, to, to stress is, if at all possible, uh, this vaccine rollout is getting to be as picking up steam and it's more and more uh, availability. If you have the opportunity or your family members have the opportunity, you know, please get vaccinated. And that is, again, another preventative action. Uh, I do know that the Los Angeles uh, Fire Department, uh, they were they were seeing about over 200 cases a day where people were 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 in isolation. Uh, over 20 people a day were being tested positive and, and they've vaccinated approximately 55% of their, of their workforce and it's dropped down to near zero tests for being positive now that they're seeing and they're, they only have 20 people that are in isolation. So again, that's just a preventative thing. Not everybody can get the vaccine, of course, yet, and it's only a small, but the rollout is coming. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I know that Dr. Denham and, and the, the group tries to educate individuals but please consider that anything we can do to be preventative. Um, uh, we are at very high risk at the front lines, uh, any of the first responders. And one of the things to remember that my, my, my loving wife tells me all the time is that you cannot help anyone if you're not healthy yourself. And so one of the things that we try to stress mm -hmm. amongst the first responders is you've got to set up your safety plan. You've got to work with your family. Uh, you've got to make sure that you're doing the things to protect your family, which means it's protecting you and it's protecting the rest of the workforce. And we are our guardians and we're used to being the individuals that step up, step up in our families and do the things we need to do to protect them. And I'm going to be frank with you. If we get sick, we're out of, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be out of uh uh, think we're not going to be able to do what we should do, and it's going to be really devastating to our families. So, wonderful information today. Uh, learning about, particularly at least in my case, of when you should go to an emergency room, how we should how we should get to and from the emergency room. So, I want to thank everybody and and commend uh, everyone for doing this, and and more kudos to you and the youth that you guys are the are the future. And if there's anything I can do, let me know. So, uh, back to you, Dr. Denham. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Chief. And uh, Chief and Dr. Boats and a number have contributed the, the uh, uh, and, and and our young people. The As we head into Super Bowl, we head into Ski Week, we head into uh, uh, Spring Break, we got the, um, the holiday uh, huddle checklist out to more than 20,000 families within a, about six days from developing it and getting it deployed over the holidays because we saw this terrible bump that was going to happen with the, the, the bubbles getting together. And we think that we can have an enormous reach through you all as young people. We have a, a smaller audience live. Thank you for our live audience today, but many of you watch us uh, on demand and take part of this, uh, take this program as part of the course. So uh, uh, I'd like to give Heather Foster a quick sentence if she'd like to add anything because she does have young family. Uh, and then we'll go to Jennifer um, uh, Dingman to close. Well, um, to address the issue of uh, our Generation Z, uh, since I have a few of those in my house, 
I'm actually impressed. They'll be the first to grab their masks. Um, they'll be the first to make sure their masks are cleaned. We have both cloths and surgical in the house. Um, so I, I actually think that if they know the risks, they're going to be more cautious. So I think using your social media platform, Daniel, and getting the risks out there is crucial to, to um, helping mitigate the, the spread um, amongst this population group. With that being said, um, we touched on confusion earlier. Just another example of what we're seeing in COVID is this happy hypoxia phenomenon. It's not new, but I see it a lot. It's really scary. And that's what keeps me up at night is I have a patient and I, I just can't keep their sats up. So there's this there are, three, there are three factors that contribute to that, which um, maybe we can get into at some, at some point, but um, it's, it's really hard to manage, especially in a small hospital. Um, so people can be hypoxic and not even know it. And, and it's also very high amongst your pediatric population. And then um, another symptom with that, I wanted to mention um, just the other day, uh, the, the compassion fatigue is, is real. Um, I was running around a room trying to help a COVID patient and I almost fell. <laughs> um, and I shocked myself. I'm, I'm tired. I'm getting COVID patients every shift I work. And I'm sure a lot of other nurses are too. And providers We're getting really tired. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention was this uh, same patient, uh, the night before promptly took her albuterol and, um, inhaler. The next night I gave it to her, she started to drink out of it. So there was her, another sign that things were not improving. So those are just some things I wanted to add to what Dr. Clements was mentioning earlier. With that being said, um, we're going to get through this, guys. I'm positive that we are. Well, thank you, Heather, and God bless you, and uh, thank all of you. Casey, thank you so much for staying on longer than we had. It was such a gift that you've given us a tremendous gift that we'll keep giving. That we will, for those that are watching live, uh, in three days, we'll have this up. This will be part of our continuing education for continuing education units for nurses, CME for doctors, and our new credits uh, for our first responders. So thank all of you so much. I'd list your names off, but we don't want to go any, any longer, uh, but I want... I do want to give Jennifer Dingman not only a chance to close us, but make any comments that she might want to. We need to keep focusing and our young people need to focus on the people that we can save that might be older family members. And it's important for us to always set our compass heading by the patient's voice. So Jennifer, thank you for steadfastly supporting us by always providing the, the, the family and, and the, the, the patient's perspective. Any thoughts you might have, Jennifer, and please close us. God bless all of you. And thank Thank you so much. Jennifer? Thanks, Dr. Denham and everyone else here. I learned so much today. Um, I can't agree more with regard to the younger people. And unfortunately, I watch a lot of media that young people watch because I have uh, young adult children. And um, on the networks, we very rarely if ever see any peers reaching out as the, as the younger people on this webinar have today. I it would be a great dream of mine to see one or more of you maybe show up on one of these stations, put out a press release through this group or something, and, and then just kind of reach out to younger people and say what you said here, because I think if they heard it from you, I think you're very respectable, you're leaders, and I think it would really, really help 
So that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, I, I have to applaud you, uh, doctors, with regard to communication issues, because that's always been an issue for patients and families, even before COVID. And I do strongly believe that communications will greatly improve after this pandemic is over, because we've been able to see things we've not seen before from both ends, whether it's the patient and family or the, the clinician provider. So I think that a real positive that's gonna come out of this is gonna be better communications in the future. And I'm really hoping for that. And lastly, I just wanted to share with you a story of a local person who came to our organization with a dilemma and wanted some help. He had gone and to the emergency room and they sent him home. He had tested positive for COVID. He was refused a ride home by a cab company and Uber. And he finally was able to get someone to come and pick him up. So we really do have an issue with that. I couldn't find any alternative for him. Unfortunately, we just started a, a little bit of a train with families and friends when someone does end up going to the ER because he was taken there in an ambulance and didn't have a way home. So I think it's really important that our communities do something, maybe through local health departments to make that happen, or at least put out the information that, we, that came out here today on this webinar. <clears throat> Uh, lastly, I just want to thank everybody for being here. Your knowledge is gold, and it's really helped me. And I'm sure it's helping a lot of other people as well. Excuse me, frog in my throat here. <laughs> but just keep up your great work. And young people, please take my advice. Reach out to CNN, MSNBC, and some of these other medias, CBS, and I bet they would be more than happy to work with you and and kind of get you on there to talk to your peers, because I think that's what they need to hear. If they heard it from you, they might listen. God bless everyone. Uh, share this, listen to the recording, and uh, thank you, and we'll see you next month. Thank you, Jenny. Mm -hmm. Good night. Goodbye. We'll see you next week.